One of the most common questions I've gotten about this game is, so what kind of game is it? Is it a Japanese Assassin's Creed? Is this uh, a game that lends itself more towards being a Ubisoft game, other than Assassin's Creed? Um, maybe it's kind of like Tenshu, which I've never actually played, so I can't comment on. The more I played it, though, the more I thought most of those comparisons don't really strike the chord. One of the most common questions I got was, is this like Sekiro? Uh, no. <laughs> Very much no. And I want to explain at least part of why. So, obviously, you do roam around the overworld, and you do random encounters, and you do little location points, which have a fairly similar approach to them. You know, kill all the Mongols in a camp, or find the fox den, or you know, relax at the hot springs, or whatever, right? And all of those activities are fairly similar, and they give you benefits. That's how you level in the game, is by doing all that. You increase your health, your equipment slots, you gain additional equipment, etc. But that's just the genre of open world. And that's the first thing I want to talk about. A recurring feeling I had going through this game was that it shouldn't be open world. Now, I know that sounds like an odd thing to comment on, but... <sighs> this is a bit of a complex topic, so forgive me for pausing here as I gather my thoughts. Open world for open world's sake is not something I'm in favor of. We did see a bit of that for several years as open world kind of became the big thing and then faded back into relative obscurity, but we're, we, we do still see every now and again a game that is made open world because that's what you do. Open world games sell, and, this is important, open world games are the kind of games you're going to play for a long time. Thus, it's easier for people to sell people on a, a game that's open world because there's so much more content. Therefore, it's worth that $60 price tag. No judgment involved. It's just, I've always been the person who says, I don't care how long a game is, whether short or long, I care what you use that length for. To use a direct example, this game felt shorter than Last of Us 2, even though it's over twice the length, at least in my playthrough. Now, I, I was basically 100%ing early on, and then like 80%ing, and then I just did the main story quests, but still. Still, I did a fairly large amount of the content of this game, and it still felt shorter. And that's exactly my point. This kind of approach, the, the getting from point A to point B, is such an important aspect of game design when it comes to open-world games. Because if it's not interesting or engaging or fun, what you have is a commute. What you have is filler, padding, to put it bluntly. Something that just kind of is something you do to get to the good stuff. Now, not everyone is going to agree on what padding is or isn't within a game. You know, some people, I, I actually know someone personally, who thinks that in Grand Theft Auto V, the driving is padding. Now, I disagree with that, because I love the driving in GTA V. And I love just zooming around and just enjoying myself. In fact, during the GTA V lore run, some of you may remember, I was driving around rather than warping, fast traveling, because I could, because it was fun. I had to stop doing that because the run was getting on in time and I have other things to do. So it's it's not like there's a unified way to do that, but at the same time, it was one of the bigger complaints I had with this game. Just riding the horse from point A to point B wasn't all that engaging. To go back to another game that is similar to this, Red Dead Redemption 2, one of the things that game did in order to try and fix that is the Strangers and Freaks concept, where you would encounter random incidents or events that could more or less dynamically spawn based on relative circumstance. Like, you know, there's a certain spot and like five or six different Strangers or Freaks missions could spawn there, and, and so forth and so on throughout the course of the map, which then leads to the idea of being able to zoom around and have something to do on the trip.
there was also the the pseudo auto travel thing and the road thing and there were other things that they did but the more i thought about it the more methods i came up with to try and fix it the more i realized it was the travel itself that was the problem because every method i came up with to make traveling on a horse from point a to point b interesting involved removing the travel part hear me out for a second imagine if you could pull up the map and be like i want to go here and there was a button you could hit to just be there now you're there you know maybe somewhere near there depending on where you pick like if you pick on the cliff edge it would probably you know, smartly be like, okay, you need to be down at the base of the cliff. Something like that, right? Or maybe, in addendum to that mechanic, there's a thing where you can click that and then hit another button down here, and that button allows you to auto-travel to that point. So, if, if you're paying attention, that probably sounds a lot like Assassin's Creed Origins system, actually, which did a similar thing. You could set a route and then just hit go. And that way, while you're traveling, you could zoom the camera on and look at the incredibly gorgeous terrain. Because, my God, this game is beautiful. Holy crap. Maybe zoom the camera out a bit. You know, instead of being in this, you could be up here and just kind of be looking around, seeing what you're looking at. Just, just stuff like that. Just little ideas like that. They didn't do any of that, of course. And I did feel it was to, to its detriment. I also feel that the camera really needed fixing. So, the camera in this game obeys collision, which is horrific given how many areas you fight where they're not so much closed quarters, but, you know, you're, you're in a camp, and so there's a tent here and a wall here, and you're fighting here. So as long as the camera's here or here, you're fine, but as soon as it rotates in either direction, what you have is the camera going, because it's running into the collision of the wall or the tent. And that was basically a nonstop issue. Now, in credit to the game... The game did two things to help mitigate this. One, a lot of the cues that you need for combat are audio, so I was able to listen to what I was doing. And two, the little red glow for the attacks you cannot parry were visible regardless of what you were seeing them through. But I think doing some smart, uh, I don't know what it's actually properly called, but the thing where the camera rotates out through the terrain, and then it de-renders the terrain in between you and the camera so you can see what's going on. There's a term for that, I don't know what that's called. I think that would have worked a lot better and would have removed that niggle. I also think Act 3 kind of fell apart, but that's more of a story thing. But I'm kind of upfronting my, my complaints about this game, because they are relatively minor in what was an amazing and excellent game. I was blown away by how good this game was for me. I mean, I know my ruminations aren't about reviews, that the reviews are the reviews, but I wanted to talk about the quality of the game here, in my opinion, because it informs the strategy of marketing, to which I say... There was none. Near as I can tell, the marketing strategy here was, hey, there's a game coming out. No big press, no big push, no early release, no controversy, false or otherwise, designed to increase buzz about it. It just kind of came out. Now, we live in the modern era, which means that word of mouth spreads like crazy now. And so a lot of people heard about this game and heard it was good. So it spread to a lot of other people who heard it was good, and so forth and so on. By all accounts, as of the time of recording this video, this game is selling extremely well. And good, it deserves to. But it's in the absence of the marketing strategy rather than in the presence of it. And that's just, I, I don't know what to say about that, because I'm not sure if that was done deliberately or not. Usually, when I see a company approach marketing this way, basically not marketing it, it's because the studio either doesn't have faith in it or doesn't want to burn the money on it, which usually involves not having faith in it. It's interesting because this game's release was also fiddled with specifically to not coincide with Last of Us 2's release, 
which was not all that long ago. And that game got a fairly large amount of marketing from several different uh, avenues. So you can kind of see what I am presuming was the case here. They wanted to make sure the Star game, the guaranteed blockbuster, which was Last of Us 2, was going to sell well. So they kind of de-emphasized both attention and money to spend on Ghost of Tsushima, which, you know, has been selling really well, which is good. Again, awesome. Um, I mentioned the, the style of gameplay. Allow me to, to address one thing in particular, because I mentioned the Sekiro thing. I want to circle back to that for a second. <sighs> If there was one game I was to compare this to gameplay-wise, it would be Doom. I'm just waiting for everyone to dive to the comments and tell me how stupid I am. Here, let me, let me explain myself. Doom doesn't have a huge variety of enemies. It doesn't have this massive arsenal of enemy types. What it has is a relatively small, smaller arsenal of enemy types, but then it uses them very carefully and precisely. This is the, the, the ingenuity, the, the genius, whatever you want to call it, of Doom level design. They, you, they know which enemies work well together, and they know that you can have different dynamics of encounters by picking and choosing which ones in, are encountered at the same time, and by, in, especially in the more modern Dooms, uh, adjusting the actual level design, that is to say the physical terrain, around those encounters. Because some encounters function differently when you have tons of maneuvering room, or lots of verticality, or jumping pads, or places where you can get caught in, or your typical arena, or whatever, right? By using enemies, and how you use enemies, that's what makes the encounters interesting, despite the relative lack of variety. And now you see how this relates to Ghost of Tsushima. Because what we have here is you got sword guys, shield guys, spear guys, big guys. And I just described every enemy type in the game. <laughs> really. There are a couple of variants. In fact, I started thinking of them as levels, because on the first island you have the level 1 guys, on the second island you have the level 2 guys, on the third island you have the level 3, it's actually the same island, but the third area, you have the level 3 enemies, and there's also a level 4 enemy which only showed up in the final mission. There's also the Straw Hat spoilers, who are sword guys, but have slightly different patterns to them, and bandits, which are basically level 0.5, which can still have the, you know spears and, and all that stuff. And that, that's the enemy types. There you go. That's it. But the game smartly uses them and the terrain around them to make the encounters interesting. To make the point more clearly, I never got bored of the actual encounters. There are a few times where I wasn't, where, where I was trying to do something that wasn't fight. And it's like, come on, I just want to get from point A to point B. Get out of my way. Get out of my way. But um, as I was fighting them, as I was encountering them, I never... Uh, it never got dull for me, because they kept... The game's about group combat. The, this is the biggest contrast to Sekiro. Sekiro was a duel game, right? You fighting one other enemy or one other boss. Far higher variety of bosses, far higher variety of enemy types in Sekiro compared to this game. But anytime you were fighting multiple enemies in Sekiro, that was mean, and you had to really know what you're doing, and blah, blah, blah. Whereas in this game... If you're fighting anything less than ten guys, that's nothing. Encounters with roughly five enemies, that's a complete normal trash encounter, right? I actually had a few encounters where I, no exaggeration, was fighting about thirty guys at once. Because I screwed up the stealth and aggroed an entire camp at the same time, but it was still happening. Multiple archers shooting from the back, and the grenade guys, who, I guess there's the grenade guys too. Did I mention the archer guys and the grenade guys? 
whatever. I'm sorry, I missed a couple. I missed a couple. Big guys charging forward. Big guys with shield charging forward. There was several boss guys, the fire guys with the shields. Those guys suck. And there were spear guys all over the place. And, like, hardly any dual-wielding sword guys. And they were all just... Now, I got out of that. I was actually playing on medium at this point. I'll go ahead and give that information away. But I just want to point that out because, while this game obviously does have the duels, and the duels are obviously a major part of the combat, the the group combat, the you versus the overwhelming superior forces, is clearly the overall thrust of the game. And that's why I distinguish it from so many other different types of games that otherwise it has been compared to, especially Sekiro. The game... Uh, where do I want to go with that? Stances, I guess? We could talk about stances. So, I don't like the stances as much as I thought I would, because the stances basically form a rock-paper-scissors mechanic. If you have stored stances, so all the stances change how you swing. That is good, and that is something that I would use several times, because I like certain different swing styles. Water, uh, that is to say the shield one, is one of my favorite ones, because you could so smoothly weave your attacks in and out of each other. But the main purpose is each of the stances' heavy attack, which is the triangle button, allows you to eat more easily do stagger damage to the block bar of enemies of that type. Stone for sword, water for shield, uh, air for spear, and moon for the big guys, right? And they just melt if, if you're using the right stance against them. And if you're using the wrong stance, you can still defeat them, especially if you parry or, or perfect dodge or whatever. But it's going to be slower, and you, can, and you have a much harder time breaking their block. And occasionally, a little tutorial pop-up shows up and says, Hey, you're using the wrong stance, and will not allow you to progress until you switch to the correct stance. That happened 20 hours into the game for me. Not for the first time. A little irritating. <laughs> Anyways. So st you got your stances, you got your group combat. What I really love about the combat, though, is what I have mentally thought of as the Devil May Cry thing. There's no... You hit down B, and then you do these 15 attacks. Every swing of your sword is something that is a button press from you. Now, how you weave those presses in and out of each other is also something that is... It's hard to describe if you haven't played the game. But I know several of you know exactly what I'm talking about. There's a, a dynamic way it works, you know. A jump, swing, heavy swing, light swing, light swing, heavy swing will look completely different depending on your stance and depending on the terrain type and depending on the enemy you're fighting, based on the timing of your inputs, in addition to whether or not you hold the buttons down or not, right? And so you get into this flow. The, the game flows beautifully in combat, where you're just kind of trying to make sure you have the best possible input. And again, I, I don't know how to describe it. The, the best way I could describe it to someone who hasn't played this game is if you watch someone, you know, if you watch gameplay of this game, and you see every single sword strike is a button press... That helps to explain the nature of the combat and how that works. There's also... So, the game... I, don't, I actually don't have much else to say about the gameplay side of things. Like I said, I felt like some of the side activities were not all that great. This, so there's your main quest, which are the gold icons. Then there's your character quests, which have character icons. Then there's your side quests. Then there's your side activities. The side activities are, you know, finding a fox den or whatever, right? That That's just tiny little side stuff. Uh, that I would also include the Mongol camps in that, by the way. The side quests do have story to them. The quality of those stories varies wildly. And I have to admit, after a while, I just kind of started getting deinvested in that. So I kind of stopped doing them. The character quests are excellent, and I highly recommend you do them. They're completely optional, and... 
whether or not you do them and what point you're at in them will change those characters' dialogues in the main quest. And then, of course, there's the main quest, which is duh. Now, I bring up this distinction. Obviously, this is more of a story thing than a gameplay thing. But I bring up this distinction because, with only a few exceptions, the gameplay of each of these quests is nearly identical. And that's, again, kind of a weakness, I think, of the open-world format. I think if they had more time to really focus on the level design and the unique mechanics that they could do with this sort of a system, they could have done more interesting things rather than you know, go to place, sneak through place, loot thing, kill people, and that's basically it. There were a few exceptions, but almost all those exceptions were on the main quest, not the other three. Uh, four. One, two, three. No, it was four. It's four. Other four categorizations. I still had fun. I don't want to sound like I'm complaining. But again, I'm just pointing out how this is the third, I think, complaint I have about the open world format. The game has two styles of play. This is probably the only real focus the marketing department actually pushed. You can be the ghost, or you can be the samurai. And that's not a Japanese accent, that's just me trying to have a deep voice. I don't know. If you're ghost, you're sneaking. And you're thinking, okay, excellent, right? Ghost gameplay doesn't have a huge arsenal in its toolkit to be stealthy. What it does have is an arsenal to be an assassin. This is probably the biggest reason why people compare this game to Assassin's Creed. Because you have... Oh, God, you've got a bow. Uh, you've got a longbow. You've got explosive arrows. You've got uh, fire arrows. You've got the ability to poison someone to death. You've got the ability to send them to attack nearby people, which, yes, that's straight out of Assassin's Creed. Um, you've got the ability to distract someone so they turn away from you. You've got the ability to assassin them, assassinate them as long as you're quiet, and if you upgrade it, you can do it very quickly. You have the ability to do chain assassinations to kill up to three people simultaneously. There's a lot of options to kill people. Not a lot of options to stay hidden. There's the tall grass. And there's some gear that improves your stealth. And, and uh, there's also sneaking under things. And that's it. <laughs> that, that's, that's the stealth toolkit. You see my point? It's far more about killing than it is about not being seen. So based on that, I love stealth gameplay. I do. Anybody who's watched me knows that I eat that kind of thing up. This isn't stealth gameplay. This is assassin gameplay. So I didn't really do ghost mode. I did samurai mode. Samurai mode is walking out and saying, hey, and fighting them face to face. That's all the combat kit, which I've already spent far too much time talking about, so I don't really have any news to add there. But my point is, the game focuses on those two things and how it's kind of a choice, even though it's not part of the narrative. Now, I've heard some people complain about this, and I can understand why. Let me go ahead and say up front that it doesn't bother me at all. And the reason why is because it's all a part of the gameplay axis. It's about how you play the game, not the kind of character Jin is. Jin is his own character, completely regardless of us. There's only a couple of choices, you know, there's the, the occasional dialogue choices, and then there's one major gameplay choice in the whole game. Story choice, excuse me, which is right at the end, which I'm not going to spoil right now. And that's it. You're still playing Jin, regardless. This is not a Witcher 3, where you're deciding your flavor of Geralt. This is not a Dragon Age Origins or a Planescape Torment, where you're deciding the exact personality and nuance of the character that you're playing. You're playing Jin, the end. And, is, and they're quite upfront about that, and I'm okay with that. The reason it's, it's still okay and interesting to me is because it means you get to decide, do you want to be an assassin or a samurai? And, you, and both playstyles are viable. 
Although I would say, based on my own experience, the assassin playstyle is much easier. And I wonder if that's the point. I, I don't know if that's true for everyone, and I don't know if that's deliberate. But if it is, that would be interesting in its own right. But I suppose I don't have much else to say about the gameplay. Let me go ahead and shift forward to the story. One of the things... God, I, I have a lot to talk about here. Give me a second. Let me organize my thoughts. One of the biggest things I want to talk about is the cost of kindness. Now, I've talked about this concept a few times before. It's, it's a... I'd say it's a theory, but I've seen it proven so too many times to really call it that anymore. Basically, the more power or strength or stable your position is, the more ability you have to be kind and generous and understanding and honorable and decent to others. Because you can afford the cost of that kindness, which is if they are not, if they try to take advantage of you, if they try to mislead you, if they try to abuse you, if they try to uh, subvert you or whatever, if you are in a position of strength, you can afford to be the good guy, to put it in simplistic terms. If you are not, well, then you cannot afford it. And if you reach out that hand and it is bitten, you may die from that action. That's the cost of kindness, right? And obviously you can still be kind from a position of weakness. And you can still be honorable from a position of weakness. The game likes to hammer that word honor. And I'm going to be comparing this game a lot to Klingons, because I've studied Klingon culture probably too much, if we're just being honest with ourselves. So anybody who's watched my Star Trek stuff, you're going to hear some repeated beats here. <laughs> but anyways, the game hammers that point on because the honorable code, the external, or fake, I'm just going to call it fake honor, the fake honor that is espoused throughout the course of the game is all about following a specific set of codes and rules, which is then considered acceptable by the ruling class. This is how things should be. They've been able to do this for so long because... They've been in the position of strength. They've been putting down rebellions and bandits. The Mongolians are way better equipped for this battle than they are. They have more people. They have better gear. They have better tactics. They have technology. They don't even. They have a Huanchar, for God's sakes, or Huanthar. How do you just call that stupid thing? The, the the machine gun thing, for God's sakes. So, um, yeah, the Mongolians are in the position of strength. So, doing the honorable thing, both in terms of real honor and fake honor is something that's no longer really something that they can afford, as the bottle at Komoda Beach showed so clearly. By the way, I'm going to screw up pronunciations all over the place because I'm an ignorant American, and I actually, uh, it, 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 as per English, I voice out the vowels. But I will try to say it in the Japanese terms where they de-emphasize vowels. No promises on that. <clears throat> so Komoda Beach really showed how amazingly outstripped and outgunned the samurai approach really was. And how screwed they were when they tried to apply it. This is interesting for reasons I'll get into much later. But this then leads to the first character I want to talk about. Jin. Now, I've heard several people say that Jin is boring. Allow me to personally disagree with that. I think Jin is actually very, very well portrayed and very interesting uh, protagonist. We see in him someone who definitely has his issues and flaws. But ultimately, well... He's Worf. Let me explain that for those of you who don't watch my Star Trek stuff. I have a lorium I call the Sons of Moog effect. Sons of Moog effect is when someone uh, espouses to an ideal. It doesn't matter what the ideal is. It could be about fashion or elitism or a culture or a species or whatever. It doesn't matter. Uh, it could be a profession. They 
hold that ideal, that, that concept, whatever it is, up on a pedestal and they aspire to be the best of that they possibly can be in the absence of the reality of what that means. Thus, they are better at it than the people who are actually it because it's always from an external perspective. If that sounds like a weird way of explaining this, let me just use an example. The reason I call it Worf, it was originally called Worf Effect, but then there's already a Worf Effect, so Sons of Moog Effect. Worf is the best Klingon because he did not actually grow up in the Klingon Empire. He, as an external outsider, heard of aunt's tales and stories of honor, and he took that literally. He took that internally, real honor. De uh, trying to be a decent person, trying to treat your people with respect and dignity, you know, trying to be good, to put it as bluntly as possible, based on whatever his personal uh, honorable code is, which obviously is going to vary from person to person. But that's not the Klingon Empire, and that's not what Klingons are. Klingons are corrupt, manipulative, backstabbing, deceiving liars. But that's okay, because they have honor. Fake honor, as I call it. it is, I've heard it referred to as external honor as well. Fake honor is the societal norm which really boils down to a series of points. You know, brownie points. I'm sure you've heard that phrase before, right? And as long as you're not caught, you know, as long as you're doing things according to the rules, everything's cool. Everything's cool. And I, that's, why, that's why someone like Duras, who is a backstabbing, manipulative, assassinating liar, who is a puppet for the Romulans could be perceived as someone as having sufficient honor, fake honor, in order to be considered as someone who could actually become the new chancellor of the Klingon Empire. Because it, 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 it's all the surface, and how it's perceived, and whether or not you're caught. Now, sorry for the little rant, but I wanted to, to get that explanation out there for people who haven't seen my Star Trek thing, because that then now makes perfect sense in context of this game, doesn't it? Shimura... And the, Ro the not the Ronans, <laughs> the samurai, the opposite of the Ronans. The samurai class clearly have a great deal of fake honor. The, the, nowhere is this presented better than when Shimura actually offers to lie and deceive about the person who broke the rules just to spare his son. Because it matters whether or not you're caught. It matters who actually gets punished. There's, there's, a, there's a system, there's a rule set. We have to follow the rules, and we have to all make sure we're getting the points in the right areas to make sure that we still have our honor, our currency, if you will. So the samurai have this fake honor thing, but the problem is Jin has, well, very little fake honor, and in fact has tons of real honor. Jin cares about the people. He is here to fight for the people and to help them and take care of them and blah 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 He is doing what he feels is right and best according to his own personal code. You know, Batman, if you will, or Punisher might be a better example, although that let's not go into that one. Because the point is, Jin ends up getting shoved out of the fake honor system, just like Worf did, because he refused to practice the game, because that's what it is. It is a game of fake honor. And I'd make a reference here, but, I mean, the Game of Thrones, I almost hate the name of the show, Game of Thrones, because I've referred to the concept of a Game of Thrones several times, and everyone's like, oh, you mean like the show? Yes, but I mean like the concept. This is a Game of Thrones, and that game has rules, and those rules are fake honor. You with me? You follow me? <sighs> Sorry. I was told last night I say that too often. It's a verbal tick. I don't, I don't mean to do it. 
So Jin then becomes son of Mogafact. We also have another little problem there, because Jin not only is refusing to follow the rules, but, well, there's a political angle too, isn't there? He's running around, and I, I pointed this out on the second day of playing the game. He's running around helping and empowering the peasant classes, of, of which there's like three that I know of, in order to learn how to rise up and unify in order to fight a superior foe. And sure enough, by the end of the game, the Shogun is concerned that we are inciting a peasant rebellion. And that this is a problem and it needs to be dealt with in politics. Because, again, Jin refused to play by the rules. I've said it before and I'll say it again. I think Jin could have easily ridden this wave of popularism and his peasant army into a peasant rebellion and probably just taken over the whole island. Successfully. But, of course, Jin doesn't want to do that any more than Worf did. Why would they? They're good people. Real honor. Jin also, uh, I, there's two other parallels I want to make with Jin really quick before I move on from him. One is that he strikes me uh, in many ways of what a light Jedi probably should be. And the other is that he also strikes me kind of what a Vulcan should be. <laughs> so yes, I'm tying in Star Trek and Star Wars into this. You're welcome. But <laughs> I mean that sincerely. Control of the emotions, control of the self, not always succeeding. Remember, Vulcans do have emotions. And so do Jedi. But trying, uh, also at the same time, caring very much about others and having a strong sense of ethics to do what is right. You know, willing to bend the rules as is necessary in order to help. Which, again, is what I think both a Vulcan and a Jedi should be like. So, next thing I want to talk about is food. Now, this is mostly on the first island, but there's a recurring story element of food in the entire first island. Can I just say how brilliant that was? It's so rare that I see food being a major character point and plot point for multiple separate quests independent of each other. But again, this makes perfect sense, doesn't it? An invading army has just shown up, and it's fall. So winter is coming. This is my second Game of Thrones reference. Winter is approaching. There you go, is that better? And in so doing, they're going to need food stocked in addition to food now. Lots of the side quests on the first island are all about starvation or people who are doing things because they didn't have food. The The entire Straw, Straw Hats arc is entirely about that, or at least it's portrayed as what, well, such. I think it was actually one of the weaker parts of the game, but whatever. You know, But virtually every side quest and every person you help on the road is someone who is doing whatever they're doing specifically because I'm hungry. I'll never forget the quest for there's this woman who sends you after some bandits who stole rice. Now... She says they stole it from her. That's actually a lie. In fact, she just really wanted food, just like they really wanted food. So one bandit sends you after other bandits. You kill the other bandits because you don't have a choice. Bring the food back. And she's like, oh my god, I forgot the last time I've tasted rice. One of the Mongols' tactics is, of course, and this, again, the, the Mongolian thing being a big deal here, the Mongolians are constantly raiding places for food constantly trying to ensure that they control the food supply on the island and using food to control others too if you obey we'll feed you if you don't you'll starve and burn and worse and that leads me to why i consider this a truly good example of a dark game now i know we all have different terminologies and we all have different usages of that word in specific dark a dark story dark movie dark game 
Um, when I say dark, I, I could just easily replace that with the word mature, which is all about following logical consequence and actually analyzing actual adult topics like starvation. A work that is all about being what I usually refer to as darkier and edgier, and I definitely mean that as an insult, usually is trying to be all shocking about it. Like, oh my god, look how horrible it is. Oh my god. And really shoving it into your face as hard as possible, right? A dark work will probably have things like that in it. But that's not the point. They are a logical uh, consequence. They are a logical follow-through of the continuity of whatever's being showcased. And so a roaming army moving through the area has the logical consequence of starvation. You, you see how the, the, uh, the style and the approach is different. And there's other dark things about this story. This story has to do with the murder of uh, infant children, for example. That's a thing that happens. Not on camera. But it's handled very quietly and very appropriately, and it is treated exactly as horribly it should be. And the person, I'm referring to Masako's arc here in specific, but there's other arcs that also deal with this. Noroi's comes to mind immediately. Norio, excuse me, comes to mind immediately. But each of these arcs happens as a logical progression of events and analyzes the impact, the emotional impact, the literal impact, the mental impact of these actions, rather than focusing on the actions themselves. In short, what I would call a dark, mature story. This is how the game really sold me. And for the first two acts, I had very few comments. I had one story negative for the entirety of the first two acts. And then I had three for the act three, but this is a good time to talk about it. Let's just get that out of the way. Act three, I feel, I don't know if they were rushed. I don't know if there was crunch. I don't know if they were trying to meet a deadline. I don't know if they just ran out of steam. I don't know if they stopped caring. I don't know if they didn't know what they were going with it. Act 3 fell apart in many, many ways. And I'm not going to go through each of them. But there's some weird moralizing that just comes out of nowhere in Act 3. Which is like, oh my god, you introduced poison to the world! In, in an almost Promethean kind of a manner. The poison in question being something that old women used to kill mice that you can't tell me people didn't know about and just what but now everyone knows about it you brought this poison to our island it's just weird and out of nowhere they also treat the mongolian as though they're this huge existential threat rather than being the more serious and in uh, what's the word i want to use a subversive threat that they actually are rather than the threat being oh my god the mongols might get reinforcements or oh my god the mongols might try to cause as much damage as possible out of spite or, oh my god, the Mongols are going to hole up and just try to wait out for reinforcement. I already said that, but whatever. Instead, it's, the Mongols have a super weapon, and with this super weapon that you brought to our island, it's the poison again. With this super weapon, they're going to destroy the entirety of the mainland Japan. What? It, it, it didn't work. And it felt hollow, especially since I mentioned the internal politics thing, which also felt hollow. All of a the sudden, there's this pol political intrigue aspect of things that kind of pops its head up once, goes away, and then comes back for the ending. Right before the final boss. What? And so forth and so on. It's even worse when it gets to the character stories. Now... <laughs> we put together a team throughout this game. 
Now, this is probably one of the more subtle points of the game, and I do like this. Our team consists of a thief, former thief, a blacksmith, a, a, a merchant, a sake merchant, and then we have a former noble who resigned his post in order to you know, not have to kill himself, and a former noble who is arguably no longer noble because her whole family was butchered and her estate has been, been subsumed. And if you're paying attention, what we have is a peasant army, an army of people who are not part of the ruling class. Now, that could have made that whole political intrigue angle work wonderfully, but it didn't. And that's the problem. It's never really addressed in such a manner. It's just quietly there in the background, and then all of a sudden the shogun says, Oh my god, you must be put down because you are a threat to our ruling class, our power base. Again, as I mentioned earlier, you have empowered the peasants to fight against their oppressors, a.k.a. the Mongols and the samurai. Now, I would have loved if they really pushed that angle more. But instead, it's just kind of left in the background, and that sucks. But let's talk, let's talk about the team. Norio is awesome. He's a bro. His voice actor really sells a lot of what he talks about. And a lot of the voice acting in this game is phenomenal. By the way, absolutely phenomenal voice acting. Um, his discussions, his what he went through, poisons him. This is one of the things I really love about this game. Uh, a lot of games, a lot of fiction in general, have war is bad. Okay, This one really zooms the camera all the way down to the ground level and shows us individual people who we see their individual personal experiences with war across a long period of time. Norio is a good example of this, and he is in many ways a consequence, a uh, casualty of war. Because what he becomes is vengeful and hateful and violent. He, well, he's a dark Jedi, right? I don't want to call him a Sith, because that has other connotations. But he's definitely more on the dark side of the Force, at least how I tend to see it, which is emotion and rage and passion and aggression, which can easily lead to bad things, which it nearly does. I honestly believe Norio would have become a much worse person if Jin had not been there to follow alongside him. It's also interesting to note that in the final Norio mission, Norio insists on massacring the Mongolian base by himself so that we weren't part of it, so we couldn't stop him. And so that he could do it himself. So he could, let's call it, using his own words, so he could enjoy it. Ishikawa. Well, that story's a little rushed. I, I started strong with Norio. Let's pull the, the quality level down a little bit. Because Ishikawa's... His story starts really strong. And there's a lot of interesting aspects of his arc. The the man the old samurai who isn't anymore because of disgrace and and you know fake honor we've talked about that, but he also lies to us constantly. And then two missions before the end, all of a sudden Tomoe finally is approached and oh she's not evil by the way, she's just trying to survive and look look she's a good person she's a good person and she's gone by, very rushed. Tomoe should have probably been actually presented in character and on person much earlier on, maybe like the fourth or so quest. There's nine quests in total. Much earlier on. And the pacing of it is like build up, build up, build up. Oh, there's the end. We're done. Not satisfying at all. But it, it kind of... It's kind of interesting that Kenji's arcs, if you could call it that, are more 
disconnected, but in my opinion, better presented than Ishikawa's. Because Kenji, that's the sake merchant, he's he doesn't really have an arc in the strictest sense of the word. What he has is a bunch of unrelated missions that you do, which is him trying to be a good person and failing at it miserably. It's the comedy arc, let's just call it what it is. But the undercurrent that never changes is that he is actually trying to help. He's just a moron who is also greedy and selfish, who also is currently in the middle of a Mongolian invasion. But I give him credit, because in a similar manner to Quark over in Deep Space Nine, the guy tries, and the guy cares, and he never stops trying or caring. And that's more than I can say for a lot of people. Yuna, of course, is a perfect counterbalance to Jin. She is full ninja, full thief, whereas he is far more warrior. And he drifts more towards her and her towards him in style throughout the game. By the end, she is far more willing to engage in open tactics in battle, and he is far more willing to engage in subterfuge and uh, subversion. They also have wonderful chemistry together. But what I, also, what I love most about Yuna is that she is the kind of person who would be a very good person if the world let her. Now, if you're paying attention, you, you can make your own judgment here, but by my measure, that makes her a very good person because she does very much care. She cares, she tries, and she makes every possible effort in order to help. She doesn't like being screwed around by the ruling class, as Shimura tries to do to her twice. And she doesn't have really a high opinion of the Mongols, for obvious reasons. But Jin, remember, is a good person. Internal, real honor. And she resonates with that. She does want to help. She does care. And she does try. But she... She's a very dark person. And who has been through some very dark things. And the way she describes... There's this wonderful scene where she approaches a slave camp. Not a Mongolian slave camp. It's a Japanese slave camp. And she used to be in that slave camp. And she can't. She just she has a fairly well done portrayal of a straight up panic attack on the spot. And just can't. And Jin's like, it's okay. I'll do this. I'll do this. And he goes in and butchers the crap out of the slavers. Because all slavers must die. And then, once they're all dead, clunk, heads on a pike, and there you go. And the venom in her voice as she speaks of them. Ooh. The game handles individual private moments very well, too. There's a woman, I don't think I wrote down her name, who was our nursemaid. We can go and visit her. It's, it's mostly off. There's one mandatory quest, and then there's several optional quests with her. It's the shortest character arc in the whole game, because it's just two quests after you do her. It's three quests total. Three quests total. One mandatory, two optional. She's the one who introduces us to several of the poisons, which give us access to the blow dart things we can do. But she has some form of either dementia or is recovering from some kind of a stroke, and it is incredibly well portrayed. It is exactly how that is and has been in real life. And she keeps getting detached and keeps mistaking us for our father, whom she loved. Now, based on what we know, which is very little, admittedly, there was no clandestine under the covers kind of a thing. It was more like after our mother passed, 
she wanted to be with our father. Then our father died, because of course he did. We've got to be Batman somehow, right? And that never came to fruition. And as she loses her mind bit by bit, there's this really wonderfully horrible bit where we go to help find something. We come back and she's gone, because she just wandered off. The game makes it look like she basically had a stroke then and there. And that she is... And because within hours of that moment, she dies. I'm not going to name names or even infer anything, but let's just say I know someone who died basically just like that in real life, in a casino. Just, just wandered off, wandered off to a random table, sat down, talked about weird things, and didn't see, seem to understand what was going on, complained of a headache, laid his head down on the table. It took him a few minutes to realize he'd stopped breathing. Stroke. Yeah. Which, uh, it, in his case, specifically led to an aneurysm, but I'm not sure what happened with her. But it, it's a very similar thing that goes. It's probably the most heartfelt scene in the whole game. Especially because, by the end there, she was so disconnected from reality, she actually thought she was talking to our father. And Jin, he figures it out pretty early on, and he just starts talking as our father just to comfort her, just to give her something in her in, in her moments, because he recognizes that she's fading. This is probably a good time to segue into Masako's story. Can I just say that Masako's story is by far the best part of the whole game, in my opinion? Uh, voiced by the absolutely amazing Lauren Tom. I cannot believe she's the voice actress who voices Masako. Yeah, Lauren Tom. Uh, look it up. Uh, Amy Wong from Futurama. Lily Stormstout from Warcraft. She is, in my opinion, the best actress in the whole game. Now let me explain that a little bit, just really quick. You got, you know, there's the middle ground, right? Then you got good, and then you got bad. And then at the very bottom, at the very top, there's this little sliver, which if, you, if the camera zoomed out like this, you can barely see. That's the best and the worst, right? Over decades of analyzing fiction, I've come to discover that if you zoom in on this sliver, what you have is a surprising amount of gradients at best and at worst. Once you get to that top percent, there's a lot of degrees in between best and worst within the top percent, right? Lauren Tom is way up on the top of that, of that slivers of percent there. Even though the voice acting in general is probably all within the 1%, she's towards the top of it. She nails her role. Oh my god. The way that we find out about all the, that she's gone through. We learn about her history and her life as she seeks out who killed her family and who butchered her people and her children. And as we move through this, we learn about you know her secret lover and how she had to send her sister away and how there was this one gentleman who was actually this you know this this horrible person and she tried to rest, protect his family from him and he ends up killing them because of course he does there's just it's 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 probably the darkest story arc the most mature and the best presented throughout the whole thing i i cannot gush enough about Masako's story arc. And if you do none of the other side quests in this game, please do hers. I'm not even going to spoil the end here. I mean, I know this is rumination, but... Whew. The regret and grief 
and anger and rage and disgust and vile hatred. Oh. And I'm going to spoil one thing, because you duel her at one point in time, and it's one of the better directed scenes in the game. There's a lot of good direction in this game, too. You duel her for reasons that are, that are complex and awesome. There's a guy. She thinks he betrayed her. He didn't, by the way. But she thinks he did, so she just wants to butcher him. And she actually hits him with an arrow. We, as Jin, stand in the way. And it's like, we need to hunt him down, we need to learn this. We, you know, if, if you fight me, she draws a sword on us, she, she's ready to fight us, and she, he's like, if you fight us, the Mongolians won. And her response is, the Mongolians have already won. Then we duel her. Probably the most interesting duel in the game, with one other exception. And then we beat her. And then the following scene has no dialogue. Instead, what happens is we take her sword, jab it down into the ground between us. And while we're doing this, by the way, the, Mon the Mongolians are on approach. You can hear them. They're, they're, they're not that far away, tens, twenties of feet away, just on, you know, charging out to kill us. And he pushes the sword just a little bit. His hand's still on the hilt, pushes it towards her, and just holds it there for a second. And then she takes it and picks it up, and then we kill the Mongols. No dialogue. Doesn't need it. It's, it's, it's a fantastic scene. This is probably a good time to go into my final big points of this episode. Or this episode. This, this, this game. Real honor and fake honor. Actually, no. Because real honor is all about Jin. But the game really espouses fake honor, and we see through two characters the extremes of having no fake honor whatsoever and being a slave to fake honor. I'm referring, of course, to Koten Khan and Shimura. Koten Khan is actually a pretty good villain. I just wish he had more screen time. Oh, by the way, you're probably going to expect me to talk about Ryuzo. The only thing I have to say about Ryuzo is they probably wanted him to be our big rival character, and it never earned it. I never felt him, and I gave a negative to story for several parts of his story, which were just disjointed and weird. So let's just move that under the rug, move on to Kotenkan, who is the actual villain here. Well, no, the actual villain is Shogun, but I'm getting to that in a second here. So he has absolutely no fake honor whatsoever. Doesn't even pretend. He will do whatever he needs to to win, and that's pretty much all he cares about is winning. And he is weirdly affable, and unflinchingly brutal at every point in time. Probably my third favorite scene in the whole game is when he's standing at a castle, and he's tied up some of its people out front, and it's like, hey, your people are starving and hungry, and they need food. Okay, whatever. Then he has Ryuzo, this is the only good scene for Ryuzo, light them on fire. Lights one of them on fire, and he burns to death in full view of the castle. And Ryuzo breaks, begs the castle to open the gate so he doesn't have to burn the rest of his countrymen uh, alive. That's Koten Khan. The way he breaks people's spirit is brilliant and savage. But again, he never, even for a millisecond, shies away or flinches from who and what he is. He's a very typical Type 4 villain in that manner. He walks up and says, I'm going to win. You can submit or you can suffer worse than death. Take your pick. And by all accounts, he actually maintains his deals, at least for now. We also get some hints that he's 
this is a power play, that he's trying to use this invasion to solidify his position and have his own power base so he can go back against Kublai Khan and try to become the Great Khan. So he's, he's thinking long term, and he's got goals in mind, and he just doesn't care about what he does in the way to get them. But again, he never sh shies away from that. There's this bit where he kills Taka, because Taka very foolishly decided to strike at him. And he rips Taka's head off, and it is just as horrible as that sounds. And holds it up for Jin and says, Your friend died for you. Now I'm going to have to find someone else, and you're going to have to make a choice again. <laughs> Submit. Or die. It's very simple. Which leads me to Shimura. I think Shimura actually has real honor. That's part of what makes him an interesting character. I think he does care and does have cores of decency to him. But he is absolutely a slave to that political infrastructure, that fake honor. I think we see him again at the extremes. He's the Martok here, to put it simply, to continue the Klingon parallel. He absolutely will do what is required of him. But he knows how to game the system. As I actually referenced earlier, there's a point at which what has done is, is against the code, against the rules, and there's, there's got to be vengeance, there's got to be blood for this. Give up Yuna. To say it was her. And that way you will go blameless. Which is a lie, and deceitful, and wrong to sell out your own ally. But the thing is, that's why he's more adherent to fake honor than his real honor. Oh, sure, he was doing it to save his son. But he was doing it in order to save face as part of the point system. His adherence to this leads him to the final scene, which is kind of stupid, but also very well presented, where he is going to duel us in order to defeat us and kill us, because he's been ordered to. Because that's what's required of him by the fake honor system. And this is why I call this the extremes. Total absence of fake honor and total adherence to fake honor. Again, this is why I relate him to Martok. He could not, even in the face of something that would cause horrific damage, Martok refused to dethrone Gowron, even though it would mean the ruination of the Klingon Empire. And Shimura refused to spare his son. I know he's not literally a son, but let's just be honest, he's his son. Because of his adherence to that system. This, then, I think, is probably the biggest and most powerful thematic point of the game. Not real honor versus fake honor, just fake honor by itself. And the demonstration and presentation of what that kind of system does to people on a very personal level, which is a lot of what this game does very right. There's probably other things I could talk about. This is a very good game. I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts. I'll see you next time.